Let's turn to the book of James. James chapter 1 and verse 26. Uh, You'll find James, I can't give you the page number, but you'll find it towards the end of the New Testament. It's before Revelation and the Johns and Peter. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We're going to look at this and um, just reflect just for a short while on this idea of what it means to be religious. Because religion is not a word that most people want to take on board. What do you do if you're on Facebook? But, and, you know, for your friends, um, I'm, I'm thinking of joining, Laura, I'm thinking of joining this project, the Pass the Baton, because I want 25 friends. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, but, you know, on, on, I've got a thousand Facebook friends, but when you're on Facebook and you've got to put in religion, it's one of those questions I just think, I don't want to answer it, because what does it mean? And if you're filling out a census form, you put in religion. What does it mean? It's just, you you hear people talk about people being religious. Now, actually, the word religion itself is considered to have two different root sources in Latin. One is from the term to bind, meaning that religion is something that binds you. You're free and you're bound by religion. Um, The other is, though, that it's a word that's used to, to talk about to read over or to read again, and the essence in religion of uh, words and so on as well. Now, when we use the word religion, it's, it is very, very difficult. I personally don't like it. I don't like to describe myself as a religious person. Um, the only reason I would ever do so is because of these two verses that are here. And I think the reason for that is people confuse what religion is about because they look at the different religions. Uh, There's Donald there praying about false religions. Well, how do you know what's a false religion and a true religion? And isn't it of the essence of religion anyway that they're always saying that the others are false? And so people will back off from that. There are also people who... who, um, They look at things, they say, oh, religion's finished in this country. Church of Scotland has lost... 24% of its attenders in the past eight years. The Catholic Church, 20%. People think religion's finished. One of my least favorite posters on the back of a bus was, don't forget your umbrella, I might water the plants today, God. Now, religious posters are quite often just the, and that pretty well reaches the bottom as as far as I'm concerned. People look and go, ah, it's religious. Um, I as once spoke, well, many times spoke in a borders, but I remember one time speaking and my sister was present up in Inverness and she said it was dead funny because people were coming in, they were seeing a big crowd in Starbucks and as they turned, they came towards it and then they would hear words like God and Jesus and they would say, oh no, it's religious. And they turned, they got out of the bookstore as quick as possible. They didn't want anything to do with anything religious. I don't know whether you've ever had these nice men knock on your door, uh, dressed in pretty sharp suits, uh, 
who believe that a man called Joseph Smith was given an extra testament of Jesus Christ in a language called Reformed Egyptian, and that when he translated them thanks to a pair of magic spectacles, they were taken up to heaven. And this uh, uh, amazing document tells us about how Jesus went to America and how black people are inferior and so on. And people believe this, and they go, is this what religion does to you? On a more esoteric note, even than that, there was a cult in Japan recently that uh, police raided the premises of this cult that were driving a caravan around Japan in an attempt to avoid electromagnetic wave attacks. This group were known as Panawave. They believed the world, uh, actually they did believe it was going to end uh, a, couple, a couple of months ago because of the reversal of the magnetic poles. They were wearing white clothes that they, that they believed protected them from harmful electromagnetic rays generated by power lines and left-wing elements. So if you're a socialist here, you are emitting these, these forces of, that are going to destroy people. And if you're dressed in white, you should be okay. Um, that's what people equate as being religious. It's weirdness, it's ritual, it's power, it's abuse. And you think, is that it? Is that really what we're about? Is that what, is that what we have to respect? But then I come away from all that nonsense because Donnie was right in what he prayed. Religion is always God, uh, mankind's attempt to reach up to God or to use God. And it's always pathetic. It always fails. There may be many good things in different religions, but ultimately religion is one of the most powerful forces for harm in the world in the sense that it is normally understood. But in the sense that we're looking at it, pure religion, you'll find that it's somewhat different. And that's where you get this uh, being taught here. The difference between a worthless religion and a religion that God actually accepts. Let me just... Jesus says that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We know that we can't be that, so we're kind of stuck in a dilemma. We can't go out and compensate for the imperfections in ourselves by doing good things to, so that these imperfections are taken away. That's what the whole gospel of grace is about, that God sent his son Jesus to die for us. He sent his son to give us life that we might have eternal life. And once we have that, then what happens is that, that it, it changes not just the religious part, uh, the way people compartmentalize. You've got your work part and your friends part and so on. You've got the religious part. But it changes absolutely everything. Because when you've got religion that is about just a part of your life, that's not the faith of Jesus Christ. And James, in a very succinct way, gives us three pointers in terms of how we know how we're getting on in terms of our relationship with God. Now, I find it difficult in teaching this at one level because... The church today is, there are always people in every church who the minute you start teaching any of the imperatives, that is the commands that God gives, go immediately, oh, legalism, legalism, you're just trying to make us feel guilty. And at some point, I kind of want to look and go, well, that's because you are guilty, but that's probably not very pastoral. But it, it, it's, it's not like that. 
the imperatives, the commands come from the indicatives, that is the descriptions of what God has done for us in Christ. But what the imperatives do when we see them there, they enable us and they certainly enable me to look and say, okay, just how am I growing in grace? How, am I, how is my Christian faith getting on? If you rely upon the fact that, well, things are just going well, that's fine, I've got a relationship with Jesus and everything is okay, you're, you're probably, very likely at least, in a stage of some kind of denial. So it's good for us to be provoked to, to love and good works, as the Bible puts, us, puts it. it. It's good for us to consider these things. I think James gives us three things to illustrate our new lives. That's the controlled tongue, care for the needy, and a holy life. He refers to religion in these two verses. It's a rare use of the word, only used in Acts 26, verse 5. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. It's also used in Colossians 2.18, translated differently, but the same idea. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship or the religion of angels disqualify you for such a prize. I think that um, as we look at this, we remember that religion is not about stated religious practices such as praying and reading the Bible and church attendance, though that is part of what it is to be a Christian. But it's a word which describes our relationship with God and practical Christianity. So we'll go just quickly through the three examples. Can you move it on for me, please? The next one. Okay, the controlled tongue, first of all. This is, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. It's not often that we would begin there. But James wants us to know, the Holy Spirit wants us to know, that what we say is really, really important. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is not true. How we express ourselves, what we say, the, the tongue is incredibly powerful. We're not called to a silent tongue, but we're called to a bridled one, a tongue that needs to be broken in and harnessed. Matthew 12, 34 says this, How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James returns to this later on in chapter 3, and you'll see the words up there from verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed, and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. What we speak, how we communicate, what we write, what we say, whether we, it, it's vocally or on the internet or in letters or in different ways, we can see how powerful it is. A too hasty word, a bitter word, a subtle innuendo, a lie, boasting, a questionable joke, mocking of others, gossip, swearing, blasphemy, expression of anger, crudity, and so on. 
If anyone is able to control his tongue, he's perfect. And we find ourselves, I would suspect, every day, uh, well, I'll, I'll say this for myself, thinking, I wish I hadn't said that. And there may be those of you who kind of say, well, I'm, I'm a very, very quiet and shy person. You still communicate. You still say things. And it is, James is telling us, that it is possible for us, for our speech, our conversation, to be affected in a different way. We don't have to buy into the notion that, well, this is the way we are and this is the way we always will be. James said, if, if, if you are truly a Christian, then it will affect the way that you speak. He's telling his readers not to deceive themselves. Empty formalism is no substitute for real religion. Many people go through the motions of serving God, but their speech gives them away, as do their actions. And he says that such religion is worthless. I've been to a service where I was asked to preach, and I remember um, there was a particular type of church, there was a choir and so on, and the service itself was very beautiful in its liturgy and in its expression of Scripture and so on. And when I went back into the choir room with the choir, uh, I, I was ready to uh, talk to the folks about the Bible and so on. Do you know this? The language that came out of their mouths, the complete blasphemy, the mockery and everything. And I thought, what a bunch of hypocrites. It was, just, it was just impossible. How can you do that? How can you on the one hand praise God in public and then in private mock him? And that's exactly what James is referring to. We find ourselves in this position where there's good comes out of our mouths and there's evil comes out of our mouths. And it is not a bad thing for any one of us to this morning just to reflect and to pray, Lord, set a guard over my lips. I'm conscious when I go and speak in secular environments or you go on the radio or something that it, it's you, one wrong word, one wrong sentence, and it seems you can do so much harm. And then you can be so scared that you, you, you say nothing or you're just so bland but you just end up praying, Lord, change me so that my speech will reflect who you are. And that's a hugely important part of our faith, how we talk, how we speak about one another, how we communicate. The second aspect here is looking after orphans and widows. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, in this culture, this is particularly because orphans and widows had no provision. If their family did not provide for them, they had no provision. Now, our, James is telling us that our religion, if we are Bible-believing Christians, is based upon a relationship. The relationship is between us and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does the Father want? Psalm 68, verse 5, he's the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. In the Old Testament, there were four major categories of the poor, and orphans and widows were two of them. There's no reward here. 
There's no reciprocal altruism, the kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. There's no this will make me feel good, the kind of patronizing uh, charity sometimes that people can engage in. It is just simply, this is God's heart, this is God's concern. God is concerned about the orphans and about the widows. And he is concerned about those who have been treated unjustly. And that's a message that in our culture is hugely, hugely important. I thought what Laura said was hugely significant, that when you've got statutory organizations and governments, they're trying to deal, and I think rightly, they're trying to deal with some of the major symptoms and even some of the causes that are involved in homelessness. But how does, how does a council deal with relationships? They don't. It's impossible. And yet here is what, what you find sometimes is you find Christians thinking that Christianity is about the religious things like reading the Bible and praying, but kind of helping the poor. That's a good thing, but it's a kind of added on extra. Whereas what the Bible says is being a Christian is following Jesus Christ, following what he wants, And what does he want? He is concerned about the poor. He's concerned about the fatherless. He's concerned about the widows. And that is there constantly throughout the Bible. There's just so many verses. I'm going to just give you a few of them. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Hosea 14, verse 3. In in you, the fatherless find compassion. Exodus 22, 22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Oops, can you move on for me, please, Ramon? Matthew 25 one of the most astonishing chapters to reflect upon over and over again where Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell and as real places and he says this then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry you gave me something to eat I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you invited me in I needed clothes and you clothed me I was sick and you looked after me I was in prison and you came to visit me it's pretty cool isn't it you go visit Jesus in prison you give Jesus clothes, your reward's going to be pretty good. Then the righteous will answer him, But Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When God changes your heart, when you become a Christian, and I'm I'm not saying, by the way, that non-Christians don't do compassion and so on. Many, many do. But what I'm saying is this, that one of the evidences of becoming a Christian is that God changes your heart so that instinctively, whereas before you would turn away, now you turn towards those who are in need. If we are to reflect God, then we are to be protectors and guardians and helpers of the orphans and the widows. That is hugely uh, important within the Christian faith, and it was hugely important in the early church. If you go on to Galatians 2, Paul 
turns up with Peter, James, and John. Paul had been a persecutor. He'd been Saul the persecutor, Saul the person who killed Christians, and he's trying to convince them that he really has become a Christian and that God has given him a, a, a commission to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And they agreed, and this is what it said. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul's desire to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ is not set over against this, well, let's remember the poor. The kind of daft uh, situation you've got in, in churches today where you get some churches that say, well, we're into helping the poor, but ah, the, we don't really believe the Bible too much. Or you get other people say, well, we're really into the Bible, but helping the poor thing, that's no. Yeah, it's good, but kind of busy just now. You, you just don't get that. It is part of the essence of the Christian church. And we fail in it, basically. We, the church, ha, often becomes just about maintaining ourselves. Oh, you don't realize just how difficult it is. You know, if it would just be a case of going out and giving money. Now, you see, that's the easy bit. That's the easy bit. You can put your money into a charity jar. You can do things. And you can say, well, I'm feeding this child in Africa or whatever. But the greatest needs that people have are, yes, they are physical, but they're also mental and they are spiritual and they're all tied in. And it's incredibly costly to be involved at that level. Therefore, as we have opportunity, Paul says in Galatians, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We've been saved, Paul says in Ephesians 2, for good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We don't do the good works in order to save ourselves. We do the good works because we have been saved. Now, in our culture, you'll get people who'll say, well, we've got the welfare state, and so it doesn't really apply. That's a naivety and an ignorance which is almost inexcusable. The state doesn't provide everything for everybody. Originally, the welfare state in Britain was founded upon Christian principles, and ultimately, as the society rejects those Christian principles, the, we the welfare state itself will fall apart. But already, there are many, many people who are falling between the cracks, and there is a, a great deal of different kinds of poverty in our society. It's also not enough for us to say, well, we'll employ somebody else to do it for us. Individually and collectively, we need to be involved. There's a great passage in Isaiah where the Lord says, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And I've heard that preached many times in evangelistic context where people are told about their sins and how they need to come to Jesus for forgiveness, which is absolutely true. But the context of the verse itself is missed. And it's here, Isaiah chapter 1 and from verse 10. These are the words immediately before those verses. And listen to what God says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. 
when you come to appear before me? Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Now, what's extraordinary about that is these were feasts that God had appointed. They were appointed by God. This is not idol worship in the sense of worship which God hadn't commanded. God had commanded this. But God says, I hate it. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then he goes on, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. See, what we do when we talk about sin, someone will say, Oh, it's my bad temper. Or it's lust. It's internet pornography. It's you know, various other things that people might want to identify. It's theft and so on. And sin is all of those things. But it is also not defending the cause of the fatherless. It is not pleading the case of the widow. It's shutting yourself in your own wee world and saying, well, let God deal with that. And God says, but that's why you are there. And that's a hugely important emphasis in the Christian church. I think it is abominable. I think it is atrocious when you get churches that turn away from the Bible and say, we don't like this bit, we don't like that bit. And uh, when they turn away from the, the full teaching and doctrine of Scripture, I think that is terrible. But we do that not just when we deny the Trinity, not just when we deny the resurrection, but we also do it when we deny God's concern for the poor and that being reflected in His church. And then the third thing is just simply this, to keep yourself free from the pollution that is caused by this world. That again is uh, an amazing statement and we would would spend a lot of time looking at it, but what does it mean? The world here refers to the whole scheme of human things organized in terms of human wisdom without reference to God or his values. It is everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus in our lives. And what that means is that we are living in filth. We are living in a really polluted environment. And there are many things in this world that we can see that are beautiful and many things that are good because God created it. But the systems of this world that are being set up, the Bible tells us that they are corrupt and they are rotten precisely because they leave God out of the equation. And therefore, it's very difficult for us You can say, right, I'm getting out of this. I'm going to stay away from all this filth. No, you're not. Because you can't do that. It's impossible. You can go and live in a monastery if you want. You'll still have it. What we're actually told in the Bible is get stuck in. Get your hands dirty. Get involved. But as you do so, you keep yourself from being polluted by the world. 2 Peter 3.14 So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. 
friendship with the world is hatred towards God. We should not be those kind of Christians who come to church on a Sunday, read the Bible, sing and pray, and then go away, and then on a Monday, we're mucking around with our mates, no different from them in terms of language and in terms of the things that we desire and so on. We make every effort but then some immediately say, oh, no, no, it's not about making an effort. Jesus loves me and he forgive me and I can just get on with things. Yeah, but it's precisely because Jesus loves you that you are motivated to make an effort. And if you have a religion that says, I don't need to make an effort, then it's a worthless and pointless religion. Have, have you ever come across anything in this life that doesn't involve some kind of effort? We may want to think that things just sail along smoothly and we can just float along with it and just chill and go with it. That's not how it is. We make an effort to avoid being polluted by the world. We don't seek security or advancement in terms of what is valued by the world. We can afford to be generous. We can afford uh, the time to care for the poor. Because I'll tell you, that's the big problem that exists in the church today in Britain. It's not the lack of money, though that's part of it. It's primarily, I don't have the time. When it's about relationship, you don't have relationships on 10 seconds, friend thing on on Facebook or whatever. It takes time. And that's hard. So James is saying there's no middle ground here. He's saying there's no room for a moderate religion. He's saying that pure religion consists in these things, and there are other things as well. But without these three, without a guarded tongue, without a heart for the poor, and without a desire to be holy and kept from being polluted by the world, whatever our religion is, it's not the religion of the Bible. It's not the religion of our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess the simple thing to say is we look to Jesus. He controlled his tongue. He was passionate. He could speak with anger, yes. He could speak with pathos and love. He could weep and so on. I think um, Jesus did have a sense of humor. I think you see that in some of the things. I think, you know, his, 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 you just look at his language. You look at what he said. You look at how he spoke. You look at how he treated people. That, we're followers of him. That's what we should do. He kept himself pure, didn't he? Of course he did. And again, that's what we aim for. And he went about doing good. That's how he was known. And that's how we should be known. Not as do-gooders in the sense of people who are always parading themselves, but just those who have a heart for Christ. And because we love Christ, we love his world, and we love his people. I pray that uh, as we reflect upon these things, each of us, that we would be conscious, yes, of our failings, but also of knowing that in Christ we are forgiven. But we don't stop there. We say, okay, every day, every week, it's, a, it's an opportunity, really, almost to begin again, or at least to develop and to grow as a believer. And if you're not a Christian, you may find it somewhat strange. Say, well, I, I like this idea of helping the poor. These are all good buzzwords. But I just want to argue, I'm I'm certainly not going to argue, and I I wouldn't argue that um, non-Christians don't help the poor or can't help the poor or whatever. But I'm just saying, in order to reach people's deepest needs, 
which is about relationship. And their primary need is relationship with God. You too need to have a relationship with God. And you will find that uh, he will absolutely change everything. Tolstoy's great saying, everyone wants to change the world. No one thinks of changing themselves. I would want to put it slightly different that God changes us. And as he changes us, he changes the world. May that be so. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.